0: Welcome to the Daily Decision Podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to men. Men who are tired of chasing and finding emptiness. Men who want to find true fulfillment in everything they do. In this podcast, you will learn to achieve success in the key areas of your life. Physically, emotionally, in family, and in business. Remember... It all starts with a decision. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of The Daily Decision. I'm your host, Michael Chabot. Today we have the pleasure and honor of having Dr. Gleb Tispersky, correct? That's yes. right. All right. Um, internationally recognized thought leader and CEO of D- Disaster Avoidance Experts. He's on a mission to protect leaders from dangerous judgment errors by using neuroscience and behavioral economics to develop the wisest, and most profitable decision-making strategies. He's a best-selling author. He's written several traditionally published books, including Resilience, Adapt, and Plan for the New Abnormal of COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic. Can't wait to talk about that. Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. His cutting edge thought leadership was featured in over 550 articles and 450 interviews in prominent venues, such as Magazine, Entrepreneur, CBS News, Time, Business Insider, Government Executive, The Chronicle of Ph- Philanthropy, excuse me, Fast Company and elsewhere. His expertise stems from over 20 years of consulting, coaching, speaking and training expertise. His hundreds of clients, midsize and large companies and nonprofits Span North America, Europe, and Australia, including Aflac, Honda, Wells Fargo, the World Wildlife Fund, and Xerox. His expertise also stems from his research background as a cognitive neuroscientist and behavioral economist with over 15 years in academia, including seven as a professor at, oh, at the Ohio State University. With, Go dozens, <laughs> with dozens of peer-reviewed publications. Um, you can learn more about him at disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash Gleb Sispersky. Sorry, I'm saying your last name wrong. I apologize. No, the T is silent, no correct?
1: Yes, that's right. So Gleb Szyperski.
0: Gleb Szyperski. Okay, there got it. Go. <laughs> Well, guys, help me in welcoming Gleb to the show. It's been a long time coming, but we finally got here.
1: Excellent. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me on the show. appreciate it.
0: It's my pleasure, it's my pleasure. So before we get into all the really good stuff, I always like to ask this first question, which is when someone finds out what you do or where you're from, what is the question that they always ask you?
1: Well, what I do, my expertise is it's a disaster avoidance expert. So they ask me, you know, hey, what kind of disasters do you avoid or how do you avoid a disaster? And I tell them that, well, my expertise is actually in decision-making because it's our decisions that lead to disasters. Either our active decisions where we screw something up and that results in a disaster as a result of our own individual screw-ups, or when we fail to foresee an actual disaster coming and we don't make the right decision to address this disaster. And that's the second cause of disasters. Those are the only two causes of disasters. You know, only two things, failing, you know, our own... uh, bad decisions internally and resulting in a disaster or failing to respond appropriately to an external stimulus resulting in a disaster.
0: Mm, I love that. And it's it falls in line with I don't know if you know the Navy SEAL Jocko Willink. He's written a lot of books mm-hmm. and it, it it's he talks about extreme ownership. And so I mm. think what 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 you're talking about is, you know, the decisions that we make as individuals, right? Can lead mm-hmm. to us to disastrous futures based on the decisions we make. So do you mind if we pause here and talk about, you know, um, decision-making? Because I think that most people make decisions either just off of gut instinct, out of, Mm -hmm. um, you know, some people are just rash and say, well, it's what I want, so I'm deciding to do it, and they don't weigh the consequences. Um, What are some, and maybe this is a premature question, I apologize, but I'm chomping at the bit to ask you this question, which is what are some techniques for making good decisions, right? Mm. Like how do you make a good decision?
1: First of all, you need to realize that going with your gut is a bad decision as you can <laughs> get guess from the title of my book, Never Go With Your Gut, how pioneering leaders make the best decisions and avoid business disasters. Yeah. So what you need to do in order to make the right decisions in a very nutshell way is to realize the typical decision-making errors we make because of how our brain is wired. So our brain is wired to make decisions in a very bad way. And you probably already in a way know that. When you come across a box of dozen donuts in the break room and you're tempted to eat the whole box of dozen donuts, that's a very tempting thing. That's what happens. Or when you have a whole you know, gallon of ice cream in the fridge and you open it and you take it out and you're like, oh, I'll just have a cup. And then you end up eating half the gallon, right? <laughs> that, that, is, that is something that is very tempting and intuitive to us. Why is that? Well, it's coming from our gut. It's what we're comfortable with. It's what we're driven to do. You probably, all, most of you, most of the listeners probably are aware that that's a bad idea if you want to protect your health. And you've developed ways of protecting your physical fitness by improving the way that you eat. Now, why do we have such a response to sugar? Well, the response to sugar comes from our evolutionary heritage. Our gut reactions, our intuitions, our instincts are not wired for the modern world where we have as much sugar as we can stomach literally and much more. Yeah. Our instincts are wired for the savanna environment when we were, well, for when our ancestors were hunters, foragers and gatherers living in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people. They had to, when they came across a source of sugar it was incredibly rare, like honey, apples and so on, they had to eat as much of it as possible in order to survive and thrive. We are the descendants of those who eat as much sugar as possible. It's wired in us. So we're, that's our evolutionary reflex. Therefore, in the current environment, we still have that evolutionary reflex, but it's very bad for us in the current environment. So that. People who tell you to go with their gut, you know, follow their intuition, be natural, be primitive, be savage. You know, to quote Tony Robbins, be primal. Those are the people who are telling you to eat all the sugar, all the donuts, everything, right? That's what it means, follow your gut intuitions. They probably would not tell you to eat all the donuts because they realize how ridiculous that is. But they still tell you to go with your gut in other areas of decision making. It's just as ridiculous to go with your gut. Now think about that environment, that primal savanna environment. There, in order to survive and thrive in, let's say to threat responses, just let's go with that. The threat response that we had to deal with was the fight or flight response. That was the main threat response. Now, when we saw Saber-tooth tiger, you might have heard of this as a saber-tooth tiger response, where we had to jump at a hundred shadows in order to get away from that one saber-tooth tiger, flee that saber-tooth tiger, or fight an attacking tribal member, right? So those were that's the fight or flight response. It was very healthy in the survive in the Savannah environment for us to survive. It was very necessary. The threats we faced were intense, immediate, in the moment, savage, primal threats. Great. But in the modern environment, that's not the kind of threats we face. I mean, let's, you know, talking about resilience, adapt and plan for the new abnormal of the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic, that book. Mm. Let's talk about COVID-19. That threat is very much unlike the kind of threat we face in the Savannah environment. It's a slow-moving train wreck. First of all, it's very unlikely to have an immediate situation happening with a pandemic. So we tend to not respond well to threats that are highly improbable. Mm. Second, it's high impact. We tend not to respond well to threats that are high impact. And third, it's a slow-moving train wreck. We we tend to not respond well to threats that are slow-moving. And there are many of those. The fiscal crisis of 2008-2009 is another example of a highly improbable, high-impact, slow-moving threat that was huge, major, impacted us in a very major way, but resp- respond to it very poorly. Now the COVID-19 pandemic, a whole bunch of people responded by ignoring the information. They said, "No, you know, this is overblown. It's just like the flu, not a big deal." That's the flight response; <laughs> they flee from the information. And other people responded with an aggressive response. You know, completely go to the store, buy buy out everything. You know, the you know not no toilet paper, everything like that. That's the fight response. They're trying to take control of the situation to fight the pandemic. You know, toilet paper fighting invisible germs, right? Neither of those is the right response. And we can talk about what the right response is. Those aren't the right responses. Business owners similarly reacted poorly. Some of them just ignored the information. Some of them went to their emergency continuity, business continuity plans. Though that's the fight response. Neither of those is the right response because the business continuity plan is meant for a short disruption. Mm -hmm. And I do this all the time. I prepare disaster preparedness business continuity plans as a disaster avoidance expert. They're great for when Houston is flooded. That's a typical situation for which business continuity plans are prepared. It's a one-week, two-week break. They're bad for a current situation because it's like Houston was flooded and then stayed flooded. That's not what a business continuity plan is for. Right. You need to adapt it to a different dynamic, and people didn't. So those are just some examples of where we are making bad decisions. And we have to realize that before talking about the strategies for making good decisions, which we can talk about a little bit later, but I want to make sure that we understand the kind of things that cause us to ba- make bad decisions, because you know, without awareness, we're not going to take the right steps to make good decisions. And the specific, Ways that our mind fails is called cognitive biases. So that's the specific patterns of bad decisions that we make because of how our brain is wired. The biggest one with COVID 19, as an example, is called the normalcy bias. Now, the normalcy bias refers to us envisioning the future as though like it's similar to the past now in the savannah environment that was very appropriate the future was going to be very much like the past so if somebody told us hey you know did you know that will be very much disrupted our world will be changed you should not believe them (laughs) that's not what the savannah environment was like it was going to be very similar but our current world is much more vulnerable to extreme sudden shifts and changes disruptions because of how interconnected we are because of how we're dependent on various technology and our gut reactions don't adapt well to this. We can hardly imagine that the world will never go back to the way it was in January, 2020. We can talk about why, but it's fundamentally changed, fundamentally disrupted. We will never go back to the world of January, 2020. And people still don't realize this according to extensive studies and research and surveys. So this, this is some of the things that we need to realize about how our brain is broken and then take the steps to fix it. Like we are taking the steps to fix our physical fitness that's badly reacts to sugar we need to take the same steps to address our mental fitness because we react badly to frets and other problems
0: yeah so wow so much knowledge in that just short span i was taking notes as you were speaking mm-hmm. and um you know do you think that I mean, look, I know here in the United States, our our physical health has become an issue, right? We've all become too comfortable, eat too much Mm -hmm. garbage. It's too readily available. We lack self-control. We lack discipline. I want to talk about the mental side of it, though, because you are a cognitive neuroscientist, right? That's right. And... The brain at its basic function is meant to protect us, correct? Mm-hmm. Like yes. stay in bed because it's warm. Don't go outside. Don't leave the cave because the saber-tooth tiger will eat you, mm-hmm. right? Yes. That's in that's in what I call the lizard brain. That's in our mm-hmm. it's the same mm-hmm. area that controls your fight or flight, your heartbeat, your breathing. Is that correct?
1: That's right. And that's the gut instincts. The lizard yeah. brain is the gut instincts. That's the intuition. That's what Tony Robbins and yeah. Malcolm Gladwell and so on, who tells you to blink and so yeah. on, tell you to use. that. Yeah. do not use it for <laughs> for decisions that you don't want to screw up.
0: So here's what I'd love to do. I'd love to talk about, and, and you did so much of it already, but I want to really talk about COVID-19 because I didn't realize sure. that you had just released a book on this, which I think is amazing. Um, I want to talk about it more I wanna talk to you about, yeah, you're right. Like our brains are having a very hard time saying like, well, we're just gonna go back to the way it was. And that may not be the case. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that there will be a new version of normal with Mm -hmm. whatever that might be. I don't think any of us know at this point, but I'd love to talk about it more um, because Mm -hmm. I think it's multi-layered, right? You can talk about what it means to adapt and plan from a personal level, from a business mm-hmm. level, if you run a business and you're a business leader, as a leader of your family, mm-hmm. right? So let's break those down, let's talk about, first and foremost, you, know, you talk about normalcy bias, right? I love that term, um, <laughs> break that down a little bit for us and then talk about maybe, because I think so many people are struggling and what I see and then I'm gonna shut up and let you talk is that there's not many people that are on middle ground here with COVID-19. They're either one side which they're, they're afraid to leave the house ever again until there's a vaccine. And then there's another side that's like, screw it, I don't care, I'm going out and that's it, right? I don't see a middle ground. And talk about what that is from a, I guess, and correct me if the term is incorrect, but from a cognitive level or from a, mm-hmm. a mindset level.
1: Sure. So in my book, Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Normal of the uh, of COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic, I talk about the errors that we make, including normalcy bias and others, and then how to adapt and plan for individuals, for households, for businesses, for all sorts of organizations, for leaders, and then how to make sure to have a plan for the future and make major decisions about the future within the context of Mm COVID-19. So that's just the the shape of the book. So I cover all of those areas. Now, in terms of the kind of decision-making we should be doing around the pandemic, we need to realize that we will never go back to January 2020 for a number of reasons. One is a lot of people think the coronavirus pandemic will be over in a couple of months, few months, everything will be over by August or something like that. A lot of people are saying that, following that, partially because there are a number of media figures, political leaders who are saying these things. Yeah. That is not what the experts on epidemics are saying. That is not what the, and these are the people who you should be looking at. Politicians, as you know, and media figures, as you know, like to spin things in a way that's appealing to their base. Sure. Experts, health experts, epidemiology experts, their base is research. They are, care about getting the right answers. That's what they're paid for. And when they get the wrong answers, they get fired, they get you know, less job opportunities. So their job opportunities, their reality is very much dependent on getting answers that are going to be as right as possible. So those are the folks you should be paying attention to. That's just being, being very clear and those are the people who know and tell us that a pa- the pandemic will not be over until we get a vaccine mm. and we will not have any we don't have any good treatments for it we will not have any treatments for it effective treatments for it for the next year at least this is treatment and vaccine are two separate things treatment means how do you address the pandemic how do you address covid-19 when somebody already has it vaccine is how you prevent it mm. so we will not have effective treatments for it in any large mass scale for at least the next year, for at least until the summer of 2021. We won't have mass availability of treatments that are going to actually seriously reduce the pandemic. You might have heard about some things like the Remdesivir, which reduces it slightly. So it reduces the span of time that somebody spends in the hospital from about 30% by from something like 15 days to 11 days. So that's kind of the latest research on it. And it's good, it's helpful, but that's not really nearly enough to address the pandemic in any meaningful way. So the only way we'll really address the pandemic is for a vaccine. And a vaccine, realistically speaking, if you look at the scientists, not people who are hyping up their own version of the vaccine, (laughs) if you look at the scientists, experts who know how long it takes to develop a vaccine, will not be approved for Mass use at the earliest possible point that it can be realistically approved is something like the summer of 2021. Mm. That's a very optimistic scenario. It means that all the first wave of vaccines that we put into testing has succeeded. Traditionally speaking, most vaccines that go through testing and trials fail. So we should not assume that that will happen. That the first ones will succeed. But let's say that they do. Let's say we get very lucky, you know, wonderfully lucky, and they do succeed. Then, by the summer of 2021, it will be available. Then we'll have to take the time to produce it, distribute it, and vaccinate people. So that will take, you know, if you assume the government is very competent and really does a great job, which it has not been, unfortunately, very competent so far. But if you assume it's very competent, does a great job, it, it will take at least six months to do that. So that's with high level of competence. That means that we will be facing the pandemic until... 2022, the beginning of 2022, in the most optimistic case. I would say that there's less of a, than a 25% chance of this optimistic case coming into being, more likely even lower than that. But let's say that that's the case, we get very lucky. Then we will face, what What are we going to do in the meantime? Well, what we'll be facing is waves of restrictions and then loosening of restrictions, We're right now in May of 2020, where there's a loosening of restrictions. Well, loosening restrictions means that there will be an increase in cases. Mm-hmm. That's just yeah. what happens. Yeah. And then, of course, you will not want, right now, the death rates from really good hospital treatment, when you have really good hospital treatment, to something like 0.5 to 1%, 0.5 on the lower bound of estimates, 1% on the higher bound of estimates. Now, when you hospitals get overwhelmed, when there's a spike of cases, that results in an increase in death rate by about 10 times from 5 to 10 percent of the people who get COVID-19 die that that's going to be what that's what happened in New York City and so on Mm. when you have hospitals you know body bags outside of hospitals that that's not something that any politician can tolerate where you have hospital systems getting overwhelmed so when you're getting closer to that state there will be a restriction again so we're in May 2020 right now I'd say that probably you know, something like by September, by October at the latest, there will be another wave of restrictions because there will be a lot of cases. Most likely, it will be earlier. But let's say that we get lucky and the COVID-19 is its transmission is reduced in the summer. It might, might happen. I don't know yet. We don't have the summer yet. But let's say it does. Then by September, October, we'll have another wave of restrictions, and so we'll be so we'll spend another couple of months under lockdown, and then there will be a loosening. And another wave of more cases, more restrictions. So we'll be facing these waves of loosenings and restrictions in the most optimistic case until early 2022. Mm. That's, what we're, that's the reality that we're facing. Mm. If that, since, since that's the reality, people's habits, norms, values, expectations, behaviors will change really in many ways through that period. That's why we're never going to go back to January 2020 so we're never going back there and that's in the most optimistic case (laughs) realistically of course the we will it'll be more like 2023 maybe 24 so that it's not likely that we'll that will be that optimistic and that we'll be that lucky and you should not plan for the best you know it's like kind of plan for the worst while hoping for the best that's what you should plan for so planning is one of the strategies that we have to address these cognitive biases we look at the numbers we actually lay out what's likely to happen what's likely to occur you know what the finances look like and then make plans based on that but it's very hard to do that it's very unintuitive to do that it's very intuitive to say now i want to go back to you know january 2020 let me open up my restaurant or so on and not look at the reality that hey your foot traffic you know how many people will actually be coming to your restaurant it will be a third maybe a half of what previously happened and you have higher expenses than you previously had because you have to do this cleaning, you have to space tables six feet apart, You know more, something like that. That's going to be very hard on your finances. <laughs> yeah. Restaurants are already notoriously bad in terms of their profit margins. Mm-hmm. So do you really want to put yourself in that position? Right now for my clients, I do coaching, consulting, training, my company does that, Disaster Avoidance Experts in disaster avoidance risk management decision making strategic planning a number of my clients who are in the restaurant business i'm very strongly advising them to get out of the restaurant business Mm. this will not be a good business to be in for the next three four years realistically speaking and then you want to not be in that business you want to not be in the event industry and Many other things like this, like kind of in-person activities are not going to be a good business for you to be in, no matter how much you like that business or appreciate it. And I say this as someone who's one of my primary sources of revenue is public speaking. So public speaking training, I get a lot of money from it. And this is something I'm very much going out of shifting to virtual because the reality is that that's not the reality in which we live. But it's very hard to realize. It's very unintuitive to realize. So that's kind of the normalcy bias. And there are many other mistakes like this that are very difficult for us to deal with. So for example, another cognitive bias that we have to deal with and it's very hard is called anchoring. Now anchoring refers to when we hear an initial piece of information about a topic, we become anchored to that piece of information about the topic. And that is a very hard thing for us to cope with because a lot of people, when they first heard about COVID-19, they heard about it as similar to the flu. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of their, the, the way that they think about it. They're like, oh, COVID-19 is just like the flu. No big deal. A lot of people are still thinking about it this way, even though much more evidence has come into reality, which shows it's so much worse than the flu in so many ways. Yeah, I'm Not going to talk into the details. But that's kind of another error of thinking that prevents people from moving beyond their previous preconceptions and updating their beliefs based on new facts. So it's another big area error that happens not only around COVID-19, but any new information that we get. The first piece of information that we get about something very much influences our thinking on this topic, even though it shouldn't. I can talk about this a lot, but that's kind of another error that that you want to be thinking about in terms of COVID-19. And right now we're talking about just the problems, not how to solve them. We can talk separately about how to solve them. I just want to make sure that people are aware of the kind of problems that we're facing.
0: Yeah, definitely want to address how to solve them, but let's continue to address. And then I want to ask you, we'll go back to it. I want to ask you about a vaccine and and how do you handle people who don't want to get a vaccine? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Let's go back to the problems we're facing, and then I wanna talk about how to solve them because I think that is, and I wanna just stay on anchoring for a moment. Is it because mm-hmm. our brain latches onto that? Because I know as, as human beings, we, we crave order and structure, right? Mm-hmm. Our brains crave that. And so I'm guessing that's with anchoring, that, that's kinda of why we hold on to it. Well, you know, I've been told it's no worse than the flu or it's just a little bit worse than the flu,
1: right? It's really weird about our brain patterns because our brain is always looking for information. It's always looking for patterns. And it weighs the first information as the base, as the anchor for any new information. So for example, there was an interesting study about anchoring which looked at judicial sentencing on, you know, how long judges sentence someone for. Mm. And it had judges before sentencing someone spin a dice, you know, how, how much do you get? Do you get one, two, three, four, five, six, And then make a sentencing recommendation on a theoretical case after they spun the dice. And the dice was supposed to indicate the prosecutor's recommendation. But obviously the judge throws the dice. The judge knows that this is a completely random recommendation. It's not actually in any way relevant information. But we know that when the dice lands on a higher number, the judge gives a higher number as the sentencing. When the judge lands on the low when the dice lands on a lower number, the judge gives a lower number as the sentencing. This is you know, judges are supposed to work very hard to prevent themselves from being biased in this way. <laughs> mm. But this sort of completely random piece of information, you know, what you get on a dice, really impacts a judge 's sentencing so there 's a difference between you know five months for lower numbers and eight months for higher numbers that 's a really serious difference so and this is again judges people who are specifically well trained to address this. Our brain is very much looks for patterns for information. So that's kind of one of the biggest problems that we have to deal with that, that we're challenged by. Mm. And it's also very much influenced by how the sources of information that we get are that we trust. So there was you know, there was an interesting study done on Fox News viewers who were listening to Tucker Carlson uh, versus the regular Fox News on COVID-19. Mm. So th- this is an interesting dynamic. Tucker Carlson was compared to other Fox News hosts he was highlighting the dangers of covid-19 quite a bit earlier than other Fox News hosts so he would he already in february was talking about hey this is something really dangerous you want to be very careful this is something that you really want to worry about whereas other Fox News hosts weren't highly weren't emphasizing you know, and I'm not talking about whether Fox News is better or good. It's just yeah, yeah. a specific show within yep. Fox News. Yep. So Tucker Carlson was more was strongly emphasizing the threat. And the, there was a study, peer-reviewed, whatever, extensive research, which showed that the people who were watching Tucker Carlson's show, those areas and those people specifically, had significantly lower sickness rates and death rates than people who were watching the rest of Fox News just because they were fo- in march and february and march of 2020 because Tucker Carlson was just much further ahead of other Fox News hosts the other Fox News hosts shifted their rhetoric around this mid feb mid march to match Tucker Carlson's rhetoric but he was much he was ringing the bell much before this. so you can see that in those the people who were listening to Tucker Carlson kind of lucked out had better health outcomes Less death, less hospitalizations, and that all comes from the source of information that you're listening to. So that's called the authority bias, where we tend to trust people who are we see as authorities, regardless of whether or not they deserve to be trusted. Mm. There's no absolute objective difference between Tucker Carlson and other Fox News hosts, but people who are listening to those source of information, even though neither are experts in epidemiology, neither are experts in this information, we're still making this judgment, this cognitive bias of authority bias is causing us to trust them more than we really should. What people should do is actually look to epidemiologists who are experts on this topic, but they don't.
0: Yeah. So while you were talking, I was thinking, you know, especially here in the United States, this is something that I think has really made us look at our habits. But I want to talk to you about that. Why do you think in the United States, more than anywhere else in the world, our habits have become so lax as far as our eating habits, our exercising habits? I mean, we probably have the most obese population in the world. And hygiene. Let's talk about hygiene for a moment, okay? So um, my listeners know this. You may not know this. But in 2018, I actually lost a child to complications of the flu, my fortune. I'm sorry to hear that. That's terrible. And so, you know, my family has been very... Um, aware of, you know, washing your hands and sanitizing and cleanliness and all these things. Like we, Every time we fly, we bring wipes and wipe everything down. Mm-hmm. I just want to talk about it from a cognitive point of view, because you are an expert here. And I would love to know this. And I know my listeners were too, is why do you think, especially here in the US, we've become so lazy with mm-hmm. whether it's our, our our physical, you know, our mental... Our hygiene, I mean, you and I know, we're men. How many men use the restroom and leave without washing their hands?
1: Mm-hmm. A lot. Sure. Yeah.
0: Hopefully now they don't. And I know this is something different, but I just think it's such a great moment for, for our listeners to get an expert opinion on this, you know, what you mm-hmm. think. And, and then, then I want to dive really deep into the whole gut thing because that's, mm-hmm. that's huge. So please
1: what happens in the united states in particular is that we have there are two dynamics that we need to realize the us has a much more individualistic country than many other countries so individualism is very powerful here Mm. compared to other western developed countries you know those are the comparable cases it's much more powerful individualism and much less trust of experts so there's much lower trust of expertise well more recently, earlier, let's say 30, 20, 30 years ago, there was more trust of expertise and has dec- decreased in the U.S. Mm. much more than the rest of the world. Mm. If you don't trust experts and if you're more individualistic, which are, of course, correlated, the more individualistic you are, the more you feel, well, I know what's right. You know, I am, feel that I'm smart and I'm just going to go with my gut, right? Follow my intuition rather than listen to experts. Experts are the people who tell you that, hey, you really should wash your hands. You should do all of these things if you want to protect your health and protect the health of your family and those around you and your workers and so on. But if people are going to feel that, hey, I'm smarter than the expert. I can go to Wikipedia and read about this or, you know, I can just ignore this, then they will not follow those behaviors. Mm. And that is a big problem, of course, because... Experts do know what they're talking about. There's a reason they have this expertise because they've researched the topic. They know much more than is written about it in the Wikipedia article. They read, you know, I've been, let's say, I'm an, so I'm an expert in risk avoidance and disaster management. I read literally hundreds of articles mm-hmm. academic dense articles that are 30 pages of dense really written academic stuff and i'm keeping up with the current literature review i told you about this new study that came out about you know, fox news and not saying fox news is better good i'm just comparing that to one host into fox news right how many people know about that and how many people know about all of this recent literature and epidemiology and so on so You want to learn from experts and trust them in their field of expertise, especially the combined opinions of experts, what's called the scientific consensus. And there are so many people who don't. I mean, we talked about the vaccines, anti-vaxxers, right? Mm -hmm. There are so many people who don't trust experts on this. They think they know better. They think for some reason or other. And I'm not going to go into the reasons why. There is extensive research on why, which I know about and we can talk about, but maybe later. So yeah. th- there's, they don't trust experts. And as a result, there's a reason that we're having such high incidence of more measles in the US and so on, other sorts of problems, because they don't trust experts, they don't listen to them, and they don't take the steps that experts yeah. recommend to prove they don't vaccinate their kids. And then we have more measles here in the US. And so there's a lot of these sorts of problems that come from not trusting experts, not following their guidelines, and bad decisions for an individual, for a business, and from a policy, government, society perspective that result in the U.S.
0: Yeah, that's a great answer. And I think think we're going to have problems here in the United States because you have a lot of headstrong individuals that... Mm -hmm. Don't want to conform. Will not get a vaccine. Yep. Um, will open their businesses no matter what. And I don't judge. I mean, I, I I'm a person that I like to look at all sides and, and read the data and make decisions. I'm a numbers guy, so I like I like data. But um, you know, it goes back, I guess, to to. I I was talking to somebody, and I, I would love to hear your opinion on this. I was talking to somebody about you know our country from world war ii to now how soft it has become right i mean think Mm -hmm. about it when we went into world war ii we had guys 17 18 year old you know going to fight overseas um i don't think that and obviously i'm i'm not somebody who believes in war i'm just i'm talking about from a mental standpoint from Mm -hmm. a mindset mental toughness point of view is i don't think today we we could do that as a nation because i don't think we have the mental toughness as individuals which really goes back to all the things you've been talking about, right? Like accepting yes. a new normal. Mm-hmm. Like we're just trying to go back to that comfortable, soft, easy life that we had. And we've had it really good for about 12 years since mm-hmm. the financial crisis.
1: That's right. We've had it really good and people are not used to being feeling like they're being confined and, and forced to conform. Partially, of course, this, a lot of this is attributable. So what you're talking about, people becoming soft, it is attributable to the rise of the Internet. It is attributable to the rise of social media, where mm-hmm. people think that their opinions, if they read an article on Wikipedia, are as good as the top experts out there. Yeah. And as a result of that, they look for information that conforms to their beliefs and ignore information that doesn't. That's called the confirmation bias. So the confirmation bias is one of the biggest cognitive biases out there. Mm. And it's been very much exacerbated by the availability, the fire hose of information that's available out there right now. Previously, of course, you know, you have conspiracy theories and so on, all of that uh, sort of stuff. But that has not been perpetuated by mainstream media. So in the World War II, what happened was that people... What kind of information sources do they have? What shaped their perspectives and beliefs? They didn't even have television. They had radio mm. and they had newspapers. And the newspapers and the radio had limited sources of information that cut out all the BS and had information that was generally in, align, in accordance with reality, with what's going mm. on at the time, not having conspiracy theories, not having stuff that's... as There's so many people who believe in conspiracy theories around COVID-19, you know, but on the coming out, you know, whatever, there are, there's lots of conspiracy theories that are problematic and inaccurate. Yeah. <laughs> but that's an example of how those that stuff would not have appeared in newspapers in World War II. It wouldn't have appeared on radio in World War II. Right. And so people had a much more of a cohesive identity. There was a much more of a sense of, hey, we're in this together. This is the information that we all align around in the U.S., and we will take the steps necessary to act on this information in, as, a, as a country as a whole. Whereas right now, we are much, there's much more theories and BS kind of floating out there mm-hmm. that people are much more, not simply polarized, but they're much more um, disaggregated, separated differentiated and there's much less of a sense of a cohesive American identity and there's much less mental toughness as a result of that because people believe in their own little things and they're not, there's not that cohesive identity and they're not nearly as disciplined. They're not nearly as focused on being fit, tough and making the right decisions. And my book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, goes into this in depth, into the question of mental fitness. How yes. do you become mentally fit? How do you make the right decisions? How do you make sure that you, the information that you get is the right information, given that we no longer have those filters of mainstream media? that would actually filter out the inaccurate information. Yeah. Whereas you know your friends sharing face something on Facebook may not may be or may not be true, but so many people believe it.
0: Yeah, I mean, amazing answers to every question I've asked you and, and I want to transition into mentally fit because I think right now, mm-hmm. that is something that is so important in this country. And I think it, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it goes into, we talked about the problems we face and now how to solve right yes. what what we're going through. So let let's talk about that and then let's roll up our sleeves and go deep on you know never trust your gut when making a decision mm-hmm. because you know when I first, when you sent me your book and I read it I told all my friends like you guys have to read this because we've all been taught especially as men mm-hmm. like hey go with your gut. Like what does your gut tell you? What's your gut instinct? And now here's a book that you wrote that goes against what we've all been told, but after you read it you understand why. So I don't want my listeners to hear it from me, I want them to hear it from you. So let's talk about um, how to solve the problems we face and then we'll go into mentally fit and how to get there and mentally tough. Yes.
1: So how to solve the problems we face, again, you want to realize that these cognitive biases and which ones are particular to you. So for example, one of the biggest cognitive biases that I suffer from is called the optimism bias. Mm. Now the optimism bias causes me to see the world as more nice and friendly than it actually is you know i see the grass as green on the other side of the hill even though it's often yellow i see the opportunities i don't see the risks i have high expectations for other people and for myself too high mm. <laughs> so i tend to burn out and you know have conflicts with other people because they don't do the things that i expect that they should uh-huh. do so there's a lot of problems that result from me from the optimism bias and there's a lot of benefits you know i'm an entrepreneur i run the six people company you mentioned disaster avoidance experts most people who are entrepreneurs are optimists you pretty much have to be i mean half of all startups fail within the first five years mm-hmm. two-thirds fail within the first 10 years the three quarters within the first 15. Wow. so a lot of people who are who are entrepreneurs are optimists so the large majority of entrepreneurs but that causes them to make the wrong decisions often especially in the growth stage of their startup and in the for ordinary people who are optimists you know who aren't entrepreneurs so for example i'm the kind of person who has 20 ideas before breakfast and i think they're all brilliant now that imagine if all everyone in my company had this same perspective well we'd have six people with 120 ideas who would reinforce each other's ideas and say, yes, that's brilliant. Let's do that. We'd be running 120 different directions. And then that's what causes a lot of startups to fail about half. You know, one of the top two reasons for startup failure is lack of money to accomplish the projects that you sent out on. Mm -hmm. So lack of focus, you need to be much more focused in order to make the right decisions. So I like to really, I like to work with other optimists. It makes me comfortable. It fits my gut reactions. And that's something I like to do. But what I need, know I need to do in order to make the right decisions is hire some pessimists in the company. I don't like to work with pessimists. They poo-poo on my ideas, (laughs) on my brilliant ideas. And that's not something I enjoy, but I know that's something I need. Yes. in order to make the right decision. So what I do with my brilliant ideas is I give my 20 brilliant ideas to pessimists in my company and then they say, well, these are all half-baked potatoes. You know, these three of these 20 ideas are the least bad. So let's work on these three ideas and fix all the flaws and fix all the problems. They're terrible at generating ideas, but they're because they see the inherent flaws of each one. They tend to be, or the exaggerated flaws, they're too risk-averse. They see the grass as yellow on the other side of the hill, even though it's sometimes green. But what they're great at is judging ideas, evaluating them. And so they take these three least bad ideas, and they're great at fixing flaws. So they fix the flaws of these ideas, and they're great at implementation. So mm-hmm. they, then they implement the ideas. So that's kind of a really good dynamic for, you, as an example of how to fix a specific cognitive bias. It's the optimism bias. So what, one way to fix it is getting an external perspective. Mm-hmm. And that takes a lot of mental discipline. And I gave the examples of why it takes mental discipline. It's uncomfortable for me to give my ideas over, to have them criticized, to have them picked over, and then have them made somebody, you know, not simply my ideas, but a combination of my ideas and somebody else's idea. And then the implementation is not, I'm not the one implementing it. That's not comfortable for me. (laughs) That's not something that goes with my gut experience, but that's the thing that needs to happen, that I know needs to happen in order to make the right decision. how many people actually get an external perspective on their ideas very few mm-hmm. it's very uncomfortable especially as you said kind of the men machismo culture machismo kind of you know strong independent you know my god is right even regardless of what other people say right, right. <laughs> that is what leads to business failure and that's what leads to individual failure household failure where you make bad decisions about i don't know major purchasing for example Mm -hmm. or relationship choices that's not something that you is a good so that's an example of how you want to be aware of the kind of cognitive biases that you are particularly suffering from and how to address them and the book never go with your gut talks about how do you figure out which cognitive biases you and your workplace is most vulnerable to and how do you address them that's kind of one area then the other area that the book talks about that you want to be very aware of are specific techniques that you can use to become mentally fit. There are, for everyday casual decisions, there are five questions which you can ask to make sure that you don't screw up that everyday decision that you really shouldn't screw up. That's kind of one. And the other technique that it talks about is an eight-step process to go through for major decisions, whether it's for a business deciding to launch a new product or hire a new key executive, or for an individual deciding to buy a new car or make a, you know, move to a new city, whatever you want to do, Those, that's the kind of eight-step decision-making process for major decisions. Yeah. So that's what the book talks about. I can talk about the five-step and the eight-step as the techniques for mental fitness, if that's something that you would like me to do.
0: I think we'd, I, yes, please, because I think it's important and I want them to hear it from you because it's, it's very eye-opening and enlightening. So please, I'm going to just let you talk about it because it's really, really good stuff. Excellent,
1: great, so first step, this is something that you just takes a couple of minutes to talk through to think through, but it saves you thousands of hours and many thousands of dollars if you make sure to do it for every decision that you don 't want to screw up yeah. so five questions to avoid decision disasters. first, what important information haven 't I yet fully considered? So what evidence haven't didn't you take into account? Remember there's the confirmation bias there's the belief bias which causes us to look for information which causes us to uh, let our belief about what the end decision should be influence the process of decision-making and many other information-based biases. So this question, what evidence haven't you considered? What you want to do with this is look for evidence that goes against your preferences, that Mm -hmm. goes against your beliefs. Try to prove that you're wrong. If you can't prove that you're wrong, that's great. You're more likely to be right. And if you can't prove that you're wrong, that's also great because you're less likely to make a bad decision. So let's say that you're writing an important email to a client or to a supervisor. Whatever, But let's say you're writing it to a client, and you want to get the client to do something that they should do, and you know they should do, and they kind of know they should do, but it's hard for the client to do it. There's reasons that you know, it would be an onerous project. If you just write the email without ignoring information about the project being onerous, difficult to do, then the client is less likely to do it. But if you include the email in the email information about, hey, you know, I know it's going to be a hassle. I know there's some political dangers around doing this project, but it's really important for the company and for your career for you to do this. Then you are much more likely to persuade the client to do what you want them to do. Mm. So that's one. Second. What dangerous judgment errors haven't you fully considered? So what cognitive biases didn't you take into account? With the email to the client, you know, the confirmation bias might be one that you talked about a little bit, but that might be one that you didn't take into account. So what might the client like to ignore around this project? What would they tend to ignore around this project? Make sure to incorporate that into your email. Mm. Third. What would a trusted, objective advisor suggest you do? So, what would that little angel on your shoulder tell you to do about this situation? The, you can just get 50% of the benefit of this question just by asking it. Think about what you would tell a trust, what you would tell a friend, close friend, to do about the situation, not yourself, a close friend, and that helps you get outside of your head. And of course, you get the other 50% of the benefit by calling this person, or if you're a millennial, texting this person. Fifth, oh, I'm sorry, fourth how have I addressed all the ways this could fail? So think about this decision completely failing, absolutely failing, and think about all the reasons why it failed and how you can address these failures in advance. So let's say you're emailed to the client. Maybe it failed because the client is stuck at home due to COVID-19 and their kids are stuck at home and they're frustrated and upset and they're, they're distracted with their kids crawling all over them. So if that's the case, Think about how you would revise the email, e- read the email so you're in a bad mood and distracted, and revise the email to take out any negative potential interpretations in it, make it more positive, and draw your client's attention to the most important parts of the email. Mm. Finally, fifth what would cause you to revisit this decision? So what would cause you to change your mind about this decision? This is the really important part of the question because when we don't set a revision point, we're very tempted to be attached to the original decision and just keep implementing it, even though it may turn out that we need to pivot. But if you set a revision point, so for example, with the email to the client, you could say, hey, if I don't hear from the client in a week, I will give the client a call. That's a very clear revision point and you have an opportunity to change what you're doing about this decision at that point. If you don't do that, then you'll be kind of stuck, you'll be waiting for the client to respond, you'll be not sure why the client is not responding, you'll have anxiety, ruminations about this. But if you do say, hey, you know, in a week I'll do this, you can let it go and work on everything else. And that's much better for you to make the right decisions and and to have a clear mind, less anxiety. So those five steps, those five questions, if you walk, talk through them, think through them on every daily decision that you don't want to screw up, and there might be something, you know, two to five of those a day for you, that uh-huh. takes only a couple of minutes, but it can save you, like I said, so much hassle, so much stress, so, many, so much money if you, you know, make sure to actually do this. So that's an example of the daily decision making.
0: It's great stuff, and it, it- It aligns with me because the way my brain is wired, I'm a planner. Mm. I mean, even as much as, you know, and you'll see that I have some OCD tendencies, but when I go and for a drive that's outside of my community, I check all my tires. I, you know, I Mm -hmm. do all these things kind of like a pilot would an airplane just Mm -hmm. to make sure I'm a planner. And so Mm -hmm. when I read this, I was like, oh my God, this aligns with my brain Mm -hmm. so well. And I can see how much, because a lot of people just kind of, Grip it and rip it, right? When it comes (laughs) to making decisions. Sorry to be so blunt, but I mean, that's the way they do it. And this really just, and you're not saying don't make decisions, but you're saying, look, look at the decision from this side as well, Mm -hmm. and then use the data to make the right decisions. So,
1: Absolutely. And uh, I want to make sure to highlight that it's incredibly important to make decisions and not to overthink them either. There's a bias called information bias, which I talk about where we tend to, some people tend to look for too much information in order to make a decision. Mm-hmm. And that's problematic as well. What you want to do in, and this is I talk about in the major decision-making step, you, what you want to do, especially for major decisions, you want to decide how much information you need in advance, what kind of information, how much information you need in advance, what kind of information is actually important and relevant. So that you don't spend too much time looking for information. You need to spend the right amount of time that's dependent on the importance of the decision. The more important decision, of course, the more time you should spend on it. The less important decision, the less time you should spend on it.
0: <laughs> yes, and it's it's what I call uh, paralysis of analysis, right? You yes. Just-
1: Overanalyze.
0: So great stuff. Let, let's talk about, do you mind talking about the eight step process?
1: I would love to talk about the eight yes, step process. Yes, please, please, please. So the first thing you want to think about when you're going through the eight step process is what uh, is just making the decision itself. So you want to identify the need for a decision to be made. And that's a very important step. A lot of people miss this step. But think about COVID-19 as an example since we already brought up. Mm. How many people missed the need to make some major decisions about around COVID-19? They, they should have made, let's say, preparations for COVID-19 already in ideally January, but at least February. Prepare their households, themselves as individuals, their careers, their business, their organizations. Government officials should have prepared public policy, Mm -hmm. health officials should have prepared hospitals, so many things that should have been prepared that people missed the need for decision to be made. And this happens all the time, this happens all the time in households and businesses for when you're should launch a product earlier or, you know, people, businesses tend to get too stuck to a successful product and not work on the next iteration of a product that would be even more successful. They tend to miss when competitors are entering the marketplace. There's a lot of issues that business leaders tend to miss. So that's an example of where you want to be thinking about identifying the need for a decision to be made. That's the first of eight steps. Second, gather relevant information from a variety of perspectives. You want to especially look for people who disagree with you, people who don't share your beliefs. Again, for the confirmation bias, belief bias, and many other biases, you want to look for information from people who don't agree with you. You don't have to follow and do what they they tell you to do, Mm. but you want to consider their information and consider it more heavily than you would otherwise to go against your intuitions. And here's where you want to think about the kind of information you want to gather. So you don't need to gather, you know, everyone and their grandma. You want to gather relevant information from informed perspectives, especially those who disagree with you. So that's the kind of, and here you want, so you want to limit information. This is an opportunity to decide how much information and what kind you need to gather. Mm. Third, Decide on the goals, paint a clear vision of the ideal outcome. Since we started talking about COVID-19, so I talk about in the book Resilience, uh, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal of the COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic, how to make a good decision within that context. Well, when you want to decide on your goals, paint a clear vision of the outcome, think about what you want, let's say your career, talking about your career, to be like five years from now in the reality that you know, next three to four years will be dealing with the pandemic, what, how will you proceed for the career? Do you want to, if you're in an industry that's going to be hard hit by the pandemic, maybe you can get out of the industry or maybe you can somehow adapt to be somehow virtually socially distanced to make sure that you are going to have a good career, even in the context of the pandemic. I mentioned before that I'm changing my speaking, training, consulting, and coaching to be all virtual because there's gonna be so many disruptions otherwise. That's an example of how to do this. Then develop clear decision-making criteria to evaluate your goals. You wanna be thinking about criteria for your decisions before you choose options. So criteria might be for a career, the kind of salary you get, the kind of job growth opportunity that you get, the kind of, of fulfillment that you get from your career, the opportunity to work in a socially distanced manner in, uh, ideally virtually from your home. So those might be criteria that you define. And then weigh the criteria about how important they are for you. So for example, if you happen to be over 60 you probably want to weigh the opportunity to work virtually as much higher than somebody who is let's say 20. So that is that is a difference be, depending on your health risk. Then of course salary might be less important for you if you're 60 and you already have a nest egg saved, and must, might be much more important for you if you're 20 and you want to build up your savings. Mm. So if you you want to rate each of these on a scale of one to ten. So for if you're 60, you can rate salary as a scale of you know three if it's not as important for you, and ability to work virtually as ten. And if you are 20, you might say that, hey, I'm going to rank my ability to work virtually as you know, a four. It matters somewhat, but not too much. And my salary as an eight, let's say. It matters much more, so twice as much, literally. So that's kind of where you want to weigh the criteria. Then you want to generate viable options to achieve your goals. Here, this is very important. A lot of professionals, a lot of business leaders, especially who are very optimistic, tend to settle for the first available option. Mm. This is a bad idea. This is not what you want to do with major decisions. Major decisions you want to make as good as possible. So make them as, this is, The previous one is for satisfying the five questions. That's when you want to satisfy. You want to get a good enough answer that doesn't screw up. That doesn't screw you up. This one, you want to get the best answer possible. That's one why you want to generate at least five viable options. That's what the research shows. You want to generate at least five attractive options, ones that sound good to you and appealing to you. Let's say of industries into which you want to go to if you want to leave an industry. So choosing a number of industries or whatever. That is the kind of thing that you want to be thinking about or a number of roles within an industry. Next, weigh the options, picking the best of the bunch. So if you are, again, choosing an industry to go into, you can think of something like, hey, which one gets me higher salary If you're a 20-year-old in the 20s and uh, you say, okay, the grocery industry, for example, I'm going to be a manager of a grocery store. It's very highly growing. There's a lot of need hiring very quickly now, Mm -hmm. something like that. Then you can go into that industry and obviously you can't be working virtually. And if you're in your 60s, you might decide in a completely different industry. Let's say, I don't know, financial services industry, which doesn't require nearly as much in-person interaction. But... So that that's an example of where you weigh the various industries, depending on your criteria. Next, you want to implement the option that you chose, and this is part of the implementation plan. So what you want to do, this, the first thing you want to do is kind of similar to the fourth question in the previous example, where you imagine that it fails, your decision to switch industries completely fails, and you decide why did it fail? What are the problems? What are the issues? Maybe if you're in your 60s, maybe you don't have enough technological training to go into the financial industry and work virtually. So that's something that you might work on, get some certification, some education in being more technology savvy. Make sure that your Zoom interview, that you don't screw up your Zoom interview, stuff like that. The before you actually apply for interviews. So that's kind of an, a way that you can address failures. Now, the second part of this question seven, which is not present in the previous question, is how do you maximize success? You wanna make this decision as successful as possible. So imagine that it succeeded beyond your wild disbeliefs. Well, let's say the, the best option, the best version of reality that you can imagine. Why did that happen? Why did, it, why did you succeed so well? and then implement whatever caused you to succeed so well. Maybe you succeeded really well because you found a mentor in this industry that you wanted to transition into, and the mentor gave you some inside tips which really helped you both succeed in the interview and then acc- acclimate to this new industry. So that's kind of an example of something you can do. Finally, evaluate the implementation process and revise it as needed. So for this step, what you want to do is make sure you have metrics of success. Develop clear metrics that would indicate to you that you're succeeding so, for example in this new industry that you're going into you can say that at three months i will have had a really good report from evaluation from my boss and my success and i will have built up a solid network of at least 10 contacts who can help further my transition into this industry. So networking and good relationship with your boss. That, th- those can be your metrics of success, and you could see if you are on your way to achieving those. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, then you can pivot. You can shift things about what you're doing. If you don't have those metrics of success, how do you know whether you're succeeding or not? You're going to let your gut lead you into believing that you're succeeding when you might not be. So those eight steps, that's, it takes about an hour to go through, and sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on the decision. If you're deciding this as part of a group, this is a great decision-making strategy for a group, by the way. Very, very clear, very transparent. It's very helpful. So I have all my clients go through this for major decisions. This process will really help you a lot, save you so much time, so much money, so much hassle, so much stress for major decisions. I mean, how much... How much will you lose if you make a bad decision about which industry to go into, how to switch your career or what major new product to launch mm-hmm. or how to implement a major new database? All of these things, how to transition to virtual service delivery for your company. This is the kind of things that you want to use to step, this process on.
0: Yeah, I love it. It's it's brilliant. It's helped me a lot make decisions moving forward during this time. and. Um, obviously in the show notes, I'll make sure that I put a link to all the books that you've written and we'll get to that shortly, but man, the time is flying here. Um, just so much great information. And I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I have a few questions that I like to ask as we get towards the end of the interview, which is, you know, and I'd love to ask you this question, which is what profession other than your own, would you like to attempt? Is there one?
1: Gosh, (laughs) you know i really like as not i guess not profession but something i would enjoy doing let's say that way if i had all the money in the world i would probably spend a lot of my time doing gardening Mm. so gardening landscaping i really enjoy it And I have fun with it. Now, I still spend a lot of my time writing and doing publicity to spread these ideas because I'm passionate about these ideas. But I probably do them from a non-profit perspective rather than from a for-profit perspective. Mm. So having uh, in that sense so that I can spread them. I mean, obviously, I'm spreading them not only for profit, (laughs) but uh, that people would not have to pay money, that it would not be a barrier to me reaching them. So I probably spend my time... Of dividing it between doing gardening, like I said, which I really enjoy, like as a physical activity, Mm -hmm. and then doing nonprofit spreading of these ideas, which I think are really valuable and help people avoid suffering, make the best decisions.
0: I love that. And you know, while you were talking Mm and going through the eight steps, I was thinking to myself, why is this not being taught in schools? I mean, really starting in the elementary school level, teaching kids these steps, how to make decisions properly. So that as you get into high school and then you decide, do I go to college? Do I go into a trade? It's such, I mean, it's as important as oxygen, really decision-making. It really is. It It really really is. is, Right? I'd
1: love that this was taught and this is something that I would be definitely like to do, like to see done. That would be wonderful.
0: And, you know, this question isn't on my list, but because you've taught, you know, at the university level, Mm -hmm. um, at the Ohio State University. That's right. <laughs> um, you know, it's, how do you how do you get something like this into the curriculum? I mean, would you agree that our education system, and I, I didn't mean to go down this road, but our education system in this country needs a major overhaul, would you agree? <laughs>
1: it, it really does. One of the reasons I left academia about two years ago, two and a half years ago, is that there was opposition to me teaching this material in my mm. classes, and that was, obviously problematic from my perspective that I couldn't bring this research-based material into classes, whereas um, the managers, kind of mm-hmm. deans, supervisors, they wanted to f- much more focus on the content as mm-hmm. opposed to teaching people decision-making. Anyway. Which is, which is yeah, crazy this, because especially is. as a
0: college student, it's so important. you have to decide on what your major is, you know, yeah. where you're going to go career-wise.
1: Yeah, it's so much more important than, you know, I don't know, teaching uh, geometry, sorry yes. to all the geometry teachers. Yes. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> this is stuff that you would use much more than use geometry. Well, you and can decide whether you want to use geometry or
0: not. <laughs> maybe something like this pandemic that we're going through is, is the catalyst that, that changes our, our education system. I mean, I've read and heard it said that the education system we're under now was from the industrial revolution, which was yeah. put people it's, in school, educate them so they can go work in a factory, basically. Yeah,
1: it's, right. not, it, it, it's a very bad fit for the modern environment. It's one yeah. When you, our education system, as you'll notice, has not changed since n- not simply the industrial revolution, but let's say the impact of the internet and social media. Mm-hmm. So we talked about how you know, before 1990, before the 1990s when the internet became popular, people got information you know, from the library, from their news and so on. Mm-hmm. After the 1990s into the 2000s, 2010s, you know, 2020s, right now, right? We're getting our information overwhelmingly from mm. the internet, from the interwebs. We have much more access to information. The problem for us is not getting information. The problem for us used to be getting information, not the problem for us right now. The problem is filtering and deciding which information is accurate or not. Yes, That is the, we're drinking from a fire hose. Previously, we are drinking from the public fountain of the school. <laughs> now we're drinking from fire hose. And the schools are still teaching people in the same way as though they're drinking from a fountain. This is ridiculous. It should not be this way. This is, you know, BS. And unfortunately, this is the way the public education system is right now. Yeah. So it's pretty terrible.
0: Yeah, it it needs a major overhaul. It does. I mean, we could say the same thing about our medical industry. I mean, so my wife is from New York City. I'm originally from back east, New oh. Jersey, and I can tell you that, you know, my sister-in-law there works in the uh, the healthcare industry as a nurse, and I think in New York alone, they've closed 16 hospitals over the last 20 years. Mm. Now, I'm not yeah. saying that that's what attributed to the the overwhelm at the hospitals, but when you're talking about a city the size of New York City, 16 hospitals, so huge. There's, there's a lot. So we need, th- that's a whole nother conversation. I sure. mean, our infrastructure in the United States is antiquated and needs a lot of work, but yeah, um, man, you, you have shared so much knowledge. I know we could talk for hours I'm dying to ask you this question. What keeps you up at night?
1: Oh, what keeps me up at night right now is how early some states are opening up Mm. and how many more people will die because of it. I feel Mm. incredibly frustrated with the terrible decision-making being made by a number of political leaders. I mean, uh, there are states where the COVID-19 case count is going up rather than down, and their states are opening up. They're completely not following the White House guidelines, which, which say you need to wait for at least two weeks of COVID-19 cases going down mm. before you open up. I'm glad that I live in a state, Ohio, where at least there's much more focus. You know, our Republican governor is doing a very good job of mm-hmm. following health advice. You know, Mike DeWine, great job. Other, many other governors are not following the health guidelines of the White House, to open up only after you're seeing a decrease in the death rate. So that's really keeping me up at night because I hate to see people suffer, especially because of this, these really bad, horribly bad decision-making by a number of political leaders. well and so that's I, what's keeping me up at night. Yeah,
0: that's a great answer. And I want to ask you this question because this is your field. I mean, at what point do you think you have, and, and I'm not picking any sides. I, I I like to be down the middle here and I would love your opinion is, you know, there's, there's a point when you have to look at and say, you know, like this woman in Dallas, Texas who opened her salon because she's like, look, it was that or 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 I can't feed my kids. I, you know, I mean, we can't live. Mm-hmm. You know, in your opinion, your expert opinion, where do you think is that point where you have to say, look, we have to start reopening or we are going to collapse economically. And I know yeah. it's a big decision. It's not an easy decision to make. And this whole podcast has been about decision making
1: sure i think that it's not actually very hard for me i'm saying what i would say is follow the health expert guidelines mm. and so many political leaders are not mm. the health expert guidelines coming out of the white house are very clear mm-hmm. you know there's not kind of you know this is it's it's very hard if you say i want this i want that you know i think this should be the case i think that should be the case of course we, we can all have our opinions right and their opinions are influenced by a number of factors, but. If you want to coordinate and make sure to screw up the least as a society and to have the best balance between our economy and health outcomes, the, we have very clear guidelines. I mean, they're mm-hmm. not ambiguous. They say, this is what you should do. And so many people are not doing them. So that's, it, the answer is very transparent and obvious. I mean, I, it, it's kind of ridiculous that people are not seeing this as an obvious and transparent answer. Yeah. The White House is very much interested in the economy going forward we know this the white house is very much trumpeting the economy is a big thing at the same time they are saying that hey there are a number of governors who are going really fast way too fast in opening up the economy because they're not following the white house guidelines so i think you know given that one can argue about where, whether the White House guidelines are too radical, too in one direction or another, yeah. but that we do have those guidelines. We have those clear guidelines, and we have a number of people who are going way ahead of the guidelines. Yeah. And we don't have any people who are going behind the guidelines. We don't have anyone, actually. No, There are no governors who have cases going down for two weeks, and they are not opening up their economy. Mm. So the big problem right now is... Opening up too fast because nobody is there, there's nobody who's behind the guidelines, and there are so many people who are way out in front of them. The big problem with people being in front of the guidelines let me be very clear this is not simply a health threat, this is a huge economic threat. Mm. People who are ahead of the guidelines, when they open up while cases are still increasing, they are f- spreading the disease much further among the population than should be the case, and then they will see a much larger spike later onward than should be the case. That will cause much more economic damage than would be the case if they actually follow the guidelines. So I'm very worried about the long-term economic damage. So one of the biggest cognitive biases for us is called hyperbolic discounting. That's when we prioritize the short-term over the long-term outcomes. So we are very much short-term oriented in the Savannah environment. It's very natural to be short-term oriented like that Dallas woman, you know, hey, I want, I care about today. I, I don't care about tomorrow. <laughs> That's how our intuition works. That's how, kind of how we feel. We want it. We want this thing and we want it right now, damn it. And the, I don't yeah. care about tomorrow, you know, oh, damn the torpedoes, right? That's a big, big, huge problem in our thinking because in six months from now, that will be much more economic pain for us. And I care very much about people six months from now. I don't simply care about people tomorrow.
0: Yeah, no, it's a great answer. And I think we both agree that no matter, I mean, I would think we'd both agree that no matter when we open, how we open, we're going to have a spike in cases as people start to move outside of their homes, right?
1: We will. And that's why when we we will have a spike, of we will have an increase in cases. But whether it's a spike that makes it necessary for us to close in a very short term period or whether it's a slow gradual increase Mm. that will eventually result in the need to close but will have many much less of a need to close in a short time period that's what we need to address and face and fight and that's what the white house healthcare guidelines are meant to do when you see a decrease then you open up that gives you a lot of time to acclimate and adapt and figure out what's going on
0: yeah And I think it goes back to everything that you've discussed on this podcast, which is on this episode is, you know, data, decision-making, doing the research, right? Doing it correctly and not just making decisions from your gut,
1: which some governors are doing so. Exactly. And that's the big problem.
0: Yeah, um, man, we could talk for hours. Your knowledge is absolutely amazing. I just want to thank you. you. I have a few questions left to ask you. but I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your expertise and all of your knowledge. Um, so I love to ask this question, which is if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates?
1: Uh, you made a good decision. <laughs> <laughs> I love that.
0: <laughs> I love that. That's great. I didn't expect that at all. All right. Where can our listeners connect with you online?
1: They can check out disaster so that's my website it has videos blogs podcasts decision aids guides manuals virtual training consulting and coaching you want to especially check out the assessment on dangerous judgment errors in the workplace that's so the 30 most dangerous judgment errors where you can figure out which ones are mo- your most vulnerable to. For example, I talked about the optimism bias for me. I'm also vulnerable to a number mm-hmm. of others. You want to learn about which ones are you're most vulnerable to. That's going to be at disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. And there's also going to be a free eight module video-based course on how to make the wisest decisions at that same website, at that same link. So disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe.
0: Excellent. I'll make sure I put that in the show notes so that they can get to that. I'm going to do it myself. Um, last question before I let you go, what's the mark that you want to leave on the world?
1: I want to cause much, I want to help people avoid a great deal of suffering and make the best by making better decisions. Mm. That's my passion. That's my calling. That's my mission. And that's what I really want to do in Uh, in this life.
0: I love it. Um, Again, I just wanna say thank you for for coming on and sharing your knowledge and your expertise. You are definitely making a a difference in the world with teaching us all how to make better decisions. Um, Thank you for sharing your book with me and um, I'm gonna put that, the link to your new book. I can't wait to read that as well. And I just wanna say thank you and uh, love to have
1: you back again so
0: we can talk Mm -hmm. some more.
1: Excellent, thank you so much. Really appreciate you having me on.
0: It's my pleasure. And guys, if you like this, please share it, like it, subscribe to it. And remember, as I say, it all starts with a decision. Thank you for joining us on another episode of The Daily Decision. If you like what you hear, please do us a favor. Share it, like it, subscribe to it. Tell your friends about it. And remember, it all starts with a decision.